want you to imagine with me you are walking down the street in downtown Chicago. You see a homeless person. You've walked by many. This is a regular occurrence for you. And this homeless man asks for money. You happen to be right in front of McDonald's. And so you say to the man, uh, I would love to help you. Could we go in? I'd love to buy you a meal. After all, the man has said, I'm hungry. I need food. Well, you offer this man that you would be willing to take him in, sit with him. Hey, let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. I'd love to buy you a meal. I'll even buy you another meal you could take with you to go. And that way you can at least have a few meals provided for you. The man says, no, 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 I just want money. I just want money. That's all I need. Uh, could you just give me some money? And you say, well, um, I actually don't have any cash for me, but I would love to feed you. And upon hearing that you have no cash, the man cusses at you, turns around, and walks away. Here's my question for you. What do you feel? Take a minute, take a second, assign an emotion. What do you feel? In that moment, what do you do? Do you cuss at him back? Do you roll your eyes? What do you do? Here's a question. If Jesus were in downtown Chicago and he saw this man, what would he actually do? Not what would the social gospel tell you he would do, but what would Jesus actually do in that moment. Now, let me ask you a more pointed question. Who's more blessed, you or him? I want you to imagine you are in your nice leather couch in your family room, you're watching TV, and uh, you are hearing about this refugee crisis all over the world. Um, you're hearing about what's happening in Syria, and you honestly start thinking about this. You think about, this could be your kids, this could be your family, this could be you. Uh, after all, you didn't get to choose where you were born or the family you grew up in, and your heart is breaking. Your kid walks in and asks, mommy, daddy, um, what's going on around the world? What's happening in these homes? Why is this happening, you understand the answers, but sometimes those answers are honestly just too weighty for little kids to understand. You see a bunch of people with no homeland, no home, hungry, hungry children. Here's my question. What do you feel? What do you do? What do you do when everybody tells you you're not allowed to go there? What do you do when you actually don't know whether or not your money is going to get to where it needs to get? So here's my question. If Jesus were hanging out in your home watching TV with you, what would he actually do in that moment? And then here's my question. Who's more blessed, you or them? I want you to imagine um, a really good-looking pastor gets up to preach and uh, <laughs> somebody else, Pastor Craig, um, and he gets up and he talks about a sister church that they have in Haiti. And you start to realize that Haiti is so incredibly impoverished. And Hurricane Matthew has just come through the entire area, devastated almost every crop they own and almost killed almost every animal on, in their farmland. You realize these families have nothing. Their homes have been destroyed. They have no food. They have no shelter. Unless somebody gives it to them, they've literally got nothing. The pastor gets up and says, we've got 90 kids that we need to support. Many of them are not Christian kids. They come from the community. And if you support them for $28 a month and you sacrifice four uh, uh, outings at Starbucks, you can actually feed these kids. You can change, your, change their life, change your life. And maybe when the Village Church sends the mission trip down to Haiti, you're like, I get to go. And you can actually meet this kid, meet this little boy, meet this little girl, uh, personally one-on-one. -on -one. What do you feel? Because really, when we get up and do this, we're one of 100 people a year who are asking you to give your money. Are you numb? What do you do? What would Jesus do 
I mean, if Jesus was in the pew, I would honestly say, Jesus, could you get up and preach? I'd like to sit down. But if Jesus were in the pew, right, what would he actually do? And then here's my question for you. Who's more blessed, you or them? So in the book of Luke, Jesus says this, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then here's what Matthew says. Matthew and Luke tell the same, same sermon. They tell the same like, series of teachings that Jesus is giving. But then Matthew says something different. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor. But then Matthew says this. Listen up. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Hear the prepositional phrase. In spirit. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Well, is there a difference? What does it mean to be poor? And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because if you read Luke's gospel, here's your conclusion. He's talking to the poor. And if you read Matthew's gospel, here's your conclusion. I'm not quite sure who he's talking to, but somebody is blessed. And this blessing comes around the issue of poverty and impoverishedness and being poor. I want to understand what is this actually. So here's what we're doing. We're launching a series, eight weeks on the Beatitudes. You, you may be new to church. You're like, what is a Beatitude? Beatitude comes from a Latin word, which means blessedness or happiness. It's just kind of the phrase in theological terms over the centuries that we've given to this series of eight blessings. And we're going to be focusing our eight blessings in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. But I want you to do me a favor. I want you to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And the Beatitudes are the sermon introduction to the greatest, most well-known, most influential sermon that any preacher has ever given in history. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is one of the most inciting, transforming, inverting, revolutionary sermon introductions you've ever heard. Jesus is going to take what they thought they knew of God and his values, flip them on its head. And I want to tell you, for 2,000 years, the church has been reading the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and wrestling because it is so backwards from what we thought we knew and was true. So I want to build the context. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Here's what it says. And he, Jesus, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If you're new to Bible language, the word gospel means good news. And so Jesus is proclaiming really good news to people. And here's the good news. There is a kingdom and it is God's kingdom. And this kingdom is coming and it has come. With the first coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is like a small mustard seed and it is beginning to grow. And it's beginning to grow in the hearts and the minds of people, specifically people who are going to follow Jesus. And he says, He's proclaiming the good news of this kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame obviously spread throughout all Syria. And we're talking about even beyond Jerusalem, even beyond Israel. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. How many of you would love to be there, right? This is not so much faith anymore. This is sight. Like there is something powerful and unique and distinct about this man, Jesus, apart from any other teacher that has ever existed. And then here's what it says in verse 25. And this should be no surprise as you read this. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, the fame of Jesus is spreading Everywhere, And so he goes on in chapter 5, verse 1, and says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
I want to ask four questions to give us an introduction to this. Uh, Number one, why is Jesus going up a mountain? So in the book of Matthew, you need to understand this. Matthew is meticulous. He is detailed. He does not waste words. And here's one of the things Matthew's trying to do for the Jewish reader, because Matthew is not written primarily for Gentiles. It's written for Jewish leaders who understand the law and Torah and Moses and Abraham and all that other stuff. Uh, Matthew is making a case that Jesus is the new Moses. He's better than Moses. Uh, we could explain this for details and hours, whatever, but just imagine Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness who spent 40 years in the wilderness. Moses did, but did Moses get out of the wilderness? The answer is no. But Jesus, battling with Satan, gets out of the wilderness successfully. And what you see throughout the book of Matthew is that one of the things Matthew's trying to communicate is that there is another prophet, there's another one that the people of God have been waiting for. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And Matthew's trying to make a case that not only is Jesus better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than every everybody else, but he is the long-awaited Messiah, and I want you to hear this throughout the entire book of Matthew. Here is a macro theme that you need to get. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it is at hand because Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, God in the flesh, has now come to earth. And so the kingdom of God, with the incoming of Jesus, the the first advent of Jesus, has been launched, and it is now going to start to grow. And so here's what happens. He goes up this mountain, Because Jesus could have gone anywhere, but he intentionally walks up because where did Moses speak from? Where does God usually speak from when he's going to make a large prophetic address to the people? He goes to the mountain. And so Jesus is actually making a statement in going up to the mountain. And not only this, I want to ask the question, why does he do when he's ready to teach? He sits down. Now, this is what a rabbi would do. And when the rabbi sits down, he's getting ready to communicate with authority. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is not an official rabbi. Do you know that to be an official rabbi, another authorized official rabbi has to sanction you? Well, Jesus is like, well, nobody sanctioned me, but I'm going to be a rabbi. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are in awe because Jesus teaches as if he has authority. What's interesting is who had authority? The rabbis, and Jesus is now assuming this position, so he sits down, he goes up to a mountain, takes these crowds, takes his disciples with him, makes this point in the book of Matthew, then sits down as if he has some kind of authority to preach. Whatever he's about to say, this is going to be a big deal. Jesus knows that the weight of his message demands a weighty place and a weighty position. Jesus is about to give a new message of a new covenant, of a new kingdom, of a new way of living that is gonna invert and flip upside down everything that these Jews thought they knew about God, heaven, reality, and the values in the heart of God. I mean, this is gonna be the most weighty message. And on top of that, this is the first public address in 400 years plus from God to the masses of the people. Like God's had individual encounters through Elizabeth and through Joseph and through Mary, but this is the first time in 400 years God is gonna speak to the masses of the people and this is gonna be a really, really big deal. Number three, who is Jesus preaching to? I want you to think about three concentric circles because here's what he says. Uh, He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so in the first concentric circle, here's what you have. You have his disciples. You have the ones he has just called. Right before this in Matthew, um, the 12 have all just been called and now they're coming around him and Jesus has some very personal words for these 12. But here's what we also know. People want to see Jesus. If there was a man healing like this, casting out demons, healing paralytics, um, stopping those who have seizures, how many of you would go see this guy whether you were sick or not, right? Raise your hand. I would. Am I the only one who would go see Jesus? All right, good to know. You guys are weird, but that's fine. Uh, 
So that's the first concentric circle. He's got these kids. Most of these are teenagers, probably except for Peter, by the way. These are young kids, and all they know of Judaism is what the Pharisaical law and the temple religion has taught them. And what Jesus now knows is that for 400 years, this whole system has been subtly diluted and perverted, and he needs to reframe, recalibrate, reshape them to help them think correctly and accurately. So he's got these kids who've grown up in church their whole life, but they are hearing a message that is just slightly off a enough to be wrong. And he has to figure out a way to communicate with them. But then we have this second concentric circle, which we call the desperate. These are the oppressed, the sick, the afflicted, the poor. Now, I want to just, if you read your Bible semi-regularly and you ignore everything else I say, listen to this. This is like Bible tip 101, okay? When you read the Gospels, you have to reject your whole perspective of reality and enter into a new perspective. You live in a world, the majority of you are middle class. The fact that there is even a middle class is a miracle of democracy, okay? Um, This is something that the entire known world knows nothing of until democracy. I mean, there are very few places, if any, that have a category for this middle group of people who are not broke, poor, or filthy rich and elitist, okay? And so throughout all of history, you look in every single world where democracy does not reign, you look anywhere where there's communism, socialism, or anything else, and here's what you're going to find. No middle class, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and we're not talking about some Bernie Sanders message. I mean something that Americans have no idea what this is like. In America, whether or not you can go from broke poor to filthy rich, everybody with a little bit of work can go from broke poor just a little less poor. You actually have the capacity to move up a little bit, if not a lot of it, no matter who you are or where you're at. Let me tell you, in, in, in first century uh, world, that is not the case. You're either broke or you're rich. You're either elitist, you're either in control, you either have excess, or you have very little to nothing. And this is the way the world works. So what we do is we read into this audience that somehow there's like this middle class, just like you and me. That's not how this works, okay? Why did Jesus feed the 5,000? Because they were hungry and starving. Do you get that? We say they must have been hungry because they're on a long day's journey and I couldn't sit there all day and be hungry. No, you know what people with money do? They bring food with them. They bring servants with them. They make sure they come prepared, like when you go for a picnic. But in these days, they were starving and hungry. That's why Jesus actually had to feed them. And so here's what you have to understand is that there is this group of poor, oppressed, afflicted, sick people. And the reason that people flocked to him because this was the vast majority of people. This was it. But the third concentric circle, we're gonna call these uh, uh, the... Skeptical, the onlookers, the religious elites. Luke 6 says this, uh, verse 19. All the crowds sought to touch Jesus, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. But these skeptical, these onlookers, they stood in the back, they looked on with frustration, they saw Jesus as a threat. They didn't believe that he could actually do any of this. They were coming to prove him wrong. They've heard all the poor people, uh, those people who are not very smart, you know, they, they just believe superstitions. And so they've heard all these things and they're coming to disprove their ideas about who this Jesus is, to debunk him as a false teacher. And yet it's interesting that you have these three concentric circles. You have the disciples who are sitting at his feet ready to learn. You have the broken, the poor, and all they want to do is touch him. It's like the kingdom of God is so ready to burst out of Jesus that anybody who touches him just gets healed. Like it's been bound up for 30 years of his life, and now it is getting ready to embark upon the entire world. It's so electric that just a poor person or a a sick person or a paralytic touches him. Somebody possessed with a demon touches him, and they're healed immediately. Like that's the image that Matthew wants to give you. The kingdom of God is ready to take over the world. It can't even be contained anymore. 
And these are the group of people that Jesus is talking to. But now here's my question. What is Jesus's agenda? I don't know if you know this. Preachers have agendas. Do you guys get that? I have an agenda, right? I love to say like I'm pure of heart and there is no other agenda. Hopefully my agenda is pure in God's eyes. Preachers have agendas. Jesus has an agenda. He's launching his earthly ministry. And this sermon is gonna represent his heart. It's gonna represent his mission, his goals. And Jesus has three big picture agendas. In fact, um, this is gonna outline how we preach through all of the Beatitudes. His first agenda is number one, to empathize. That sometimes we see Jesus as just kind of out there. He's the stoic teacher who just throws out pithy phrases. I want you to understand that every person who encountered Jesus, who is afflicted, who is poor, who is oppressed by demons, who is broke, whatever it was, they left Jesus' presence personally, tangibly, emotionally encouraged and built up. Or they didn't like what Jesus said and they were defensive and frustrated. But Jesus tangibly left people with reactions. This is what he did. And if you wanted healing and you trusted Jesus, like he would change your life. He could enter into your circumstance. It's like when you looked in his eyes, he understood brokenness in a way that no other person could. The sickest of the sick, the sinners of sinners, somehow felt safe enough around Jesus like he understood. I think most people, when they think of Jesus, they reject him, and it's a total lie who they're thinking of. The real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, somehow could sit down with even the worst of the worst and make them feel safe and make them feel understood. But number two, Jesus is going to bless His desire is to lift up. It is to see human flourishing. Now, this word blessed, we're gonna have to redefine this in a little bit because this is America and y'all are blessed and we gotta refigure that one out. But here's the third thing he's gonna do. He's gonna recalibrate. The Jewish worldview, as we said, had been taken hostage. It had been diluted and Jesus needed to reframe how the Jews saw God, the word reality, people, and heaven and hell. And this sermon is going to be the beginning of his dismantling, recalibrating of how the Jews see God. The Beatitudes cast a vision for the world when Jesus, not Caesar, rules as king. And this is why I love this this series. This series, God willing, is going to flip and challenge how you see reality. For some of you, you might be newer to God, the Bible, etc., And many of the things that you've learned about religion and heaven and hell and God and his heart and his values and the kingdom of God, they need to be flipped in their head because they're wrong. And you know what? This is the exact state the disciples were in, the poor were in, the skeptical were in. Almost everybody had it just a little bit backwards and it was just off enough that it was wrong. So number one in your notes, let's empathize together. Have you been impoverished? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, I think the best understanding is this is blessed are the impoverished of spirit. Uh, This poverty is not like how we as Americans think of poor because the poorest of the Americans, most of the known world would love to have their standard of living. This is a different kind of poverty. This is a lack to the point of desperation. That there is an impoverishedness of spirit And somehow Jesus says, blessed are the impoverished of spirit who are lacking to the point of desperation because when you're there, if that's you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So here's my question. What does it mean when Jesus says the impoverished of spirit? Because if you don't understand this, you're gonna misinterpret and misapply, misunderstand the entire uh, beatitude, let alone the Sermon on the Mount. And so here's what happens. Um, 
Is it surprising to you that like nothing Jesus says is brand new? Um, that God was giving hints and clues all throughout history in the word of God about his heart and his values in the kingdom of God? That God has been actually revealing through his word what he believes about heaven and hell and all this other stuff? Is it a surprise to you? So the key to unlocking the Beatitudes goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm gonna put it on the screen so you can see this. But this is the key because Jesus did not just, like he didn't just get up and be like, um... Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He's actually reteaching promises from the book of Isaiah and the Old Testament. So in the book of Isaiah, there's this person called the suffering servant. It was this Messiah, this long-awaited one. And this Messiah, the suffering servant, was gonna do all of these things to the people of God, ushering the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Jesus is gonna do is make clear to everybody with a Jewish background this, I am the suffering servant, the anointed, the Messiah one, the promised one from Isaiah, that's me. So when he pulls out this message, actually, it comes directly from Isaiah 61. And here's what it says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring what? Good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To be impoverished of spirit means three things. We're gonna take these one at a time. Number one, it means this. Those who are actually, literally, physically, tangibly poor. Imagine Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's telling them about the poor in spirit. Imagine at this point, he stops and he walks down and he finds a homeless man or woman with starving kids, puts his hands on them and says this. Blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And at this point, the disciples are like, um, they're not blessed, they're poor, right? How many of you have had that thought? I literally, last night, I was in the car with my daughter. We got out, it was dark, I was, it was the only one in the church, it was like, I don't know, 9.30, no, 10.30 at night, and uh, we walk in these doors and it's all dark, and I said, Elle, I need you to hold the door open for me. Keep in mind, I'm getting ready to preach this sermon, like in 12 hours, okay? And, uh, and so I say, can you hold the door open? She's scared. So I look at her and I say, Elle, I think last I saw Bartlett is like the fourth safest city in America or something like that, like our neighborhood, something like that. There's some stat I saw, I don't know, I was just pulling it out of my rear. And, uh, but I did see something sometime that said that. And then I get in the car and she asks me, just like, what does that mean? And I, and I looked at her and I said, Elle, aren't you so blessed that God would allow you to live in a place where you could at 1030 at night in a dark place in a dark parking lot, open up a dark building with your dad and he can look at you and say, you're totally safe and objectively you are. And it's interesting because in my brain, here's what I'm, here's what I'm putting into her mind. Blessed are those who are rich. Blessed are those who have no problems. Blessed are those who are well off and better off than those who live in poor neighborhoods or who are afraid or who might get shot at night. What am I doing to my kid in that moment? It hit me actually, I got in the car and as soon as it came out of my mouth, it's like the word of God, like Jesus was like, don't get me wrong. This is a blessing, as we say in America, right? But maybe there's something deeper that you're missing. Maybe there's something more profound. Maybe this isn't it. Maybe, maybe blessing, maybe this favor from me, maybe whatever this thing is goes deeper. And what if you're just by nature teaching your kids wrong because this is all you've ever known? And in that moment, I was like, I'm one of the disciples. I am one of the disciples. I so quickly define 
God's favor and blessing by what everybody tells me is good, easy, right, and natural. Whatever is just easy, ease of life equals the favor of God on my life. That's the prosperity gospel. What I didn't even know, I am literally planting seeds of a prosperity gospel in my daughter, not even realizing it. How much more of the disciples are sitting here and all they've ever known, they've, all they've ever known is the kingdom of God is this. You're blessed because of this. And Jesus stops and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in this moment, he sees this chasm between the rich and the poor and it's palpable. He feels it. These are real people, desperate people, and Jesus is giving them real, emotional, satisfying encouragement. Now in scripture, you need to get this one, I'll give you the theology of the poor. There are four types of poor people in scripture. Uh, three are good, one is bad. Number one, poor from catastrophe. It's a farmer whose crops are wiped out, a woman whose family has been killed. Poor from catastrophe that destroyed all your property. Poor from disease, leaving one incapable of work. Um, does this mean that you are not blessed? No, but it does mean you're poor, right? And some of you personally have understood the weight of this kind of poor. Uh, number two, poor from oppression, typically from governments and kings. Think North Korea, China, Christians in China, Siri, refugee crisis. These people have done nothing to deserve this, and yet because of dictators and oppression, they find themselves absolutely broke and poor. Poor for righteousness' sake. This is those who actually choose to live in poverty for the sake of a higher calling, for the ministry, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God may call you to a third world country and you willingly choose to go. Blessed are you who are poor. Like that's poor, okay? And that is something that some people willingly choose, believe it or not. The fourth type of poor are the lazy, the ones who will not work, sloths, or those who are poor just simply, simply from bad decisions. And here is our temptation, because we interact, I believe, primarily okay, with this group. We see and filter the rest of the world through this lens, when the reality is that the, the majority of the world is not broke and poor because of laziness and slothfulness and bad decisions. They are poor because of grander issues that are happening outside of their control. And even in America, when somebody is experiencing catastrophe or oppression or things that would leave them Broke, we hide it and we don't want people to know, so we go into crazy credit card debt so we don't actually have to let people know that we're struggling financially because that would be the greatest shame of all. Oftentimes, the people who are really poor, biblically sense, around us, we don't even know about it because they're doing everything they can to hide it. So here's what happens. We run into the homeless people. We run into these people who just want money for drugs or whatever it is, and we begin to filter the entire world and all of the poverty of this world through. That's their problem. They must be just like them, and we have to resist that. Jesus is speaking to the first three groups here. He opens up his mouth and he says this to the starving and to the homeless. I'm 